Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Welcome back, everybody. Sorry, guys. How are you today? Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. We're going to do a little bit of opinion scholarship, as we like to do. Uh, Let's see. Let's see. What are we going to talk about today? An oldie but a goodie. So uh, what I want to talk to you about today is a book I read um, before I started the podcast. And uh, I've mentioned it especially in the early days, but it's been some time. Uh, and I thought, shit, there's really no reason not to do maybe a couple episodes on it. So that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about a particular thinker uh, wrote mostly in the 40s and 50s who was a Princeton professor of philosophy named Walter Stacy. Walter Stacy wrote a lot about mysticism, um, which is basically my favorite subject. So um, I guess it is what it is. Walter Stacy and Evelyn Underhill, probably my two favorite, maybe the two best um, academics writing about mysticism. And uh, they've both been influential to me. Walter Stacy wrote a book called Time and Eternity in 1952. Uh, I was able to get kind of a reprint of it. And um, it's really amazing. It's actually the first place that I encountered lots of the ideas that I talk about, maybe particularly the way that I describe God, the way that I try to understand that as a concept. Um, A lot of that came from Walter Stacy. More recently, I discovered that um, Walter Stacy had some correspondence with uh, Ayn Rand, the philosopher and author Ayn Rand, somebody who I particularly like um, for their sort of economic um, philosophy. Um, she's well known to be an atheist, to be um, anti-religious in some ways, in some sense. Walter Stacy, on the other hand, being an ac- academic, you might expect he would share some of those sentiments, but he um, He's much more optimistic about the idea of religion and mysticism, which you'll see we're going to touch on today, and I think that's kind of the point. But I did find it interesting that Ayn Rand and Walter Stacy were writing letters back and forth to each other. Those letters became public um, you know, later on, and now we have access to them. And they argued about morality, because Ayn Rand was a objectivist. She, um, she had a, a particular way. She thought that... Uh, that being selfish is is a virtue. And I know that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. You have to kind of understand the way that she frames it. She, she talks about rational self-interest. And so the idea would be, uh, and I almost stumble through this and I'll try my best here, but the idea is like if you, 
boy, you don't want somebody to love you altruistically, as an example. The person who loves you, your husband, your wife, whatever it might be, the person that you love and that loves you, you don't want them to love you because they're doing something nice for you by loving you, right? You want it to be a self-interested act. You want them to love you selfishly. They love you because they want you, right? It's important. It's very important. You don't want someone to love you out of a sense of duty. You don't want someone to love you um, because they have to. It, it doesn't even doesn't even mean love anymore at that point. It, it's about rational self-interest. People always act in, in self-interest. Um, altruism is, if it exists, is only a form of self-interest. And Walter Stacy, being more religious-minded, has a different idea of morality and where it comes from and what it means. A, a much more self-sacrificial view, you know, a very Christian view. And so they argued about it, which I, I thought was interesting. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, I want to I want to focus on time and eternity today. So I mentioned Walter Stacy was a Princeton professor of philosophy. He was also a British fellow. So I imagine he had a terrific accent. Uh, he was born in 1886, died in 1967, and the book we're reading from today was published in 52. So what I want to do here is give you um, a short introduction, and then we're going to touch on the first chapter of his book called What is Religion? And, and then the following few chapters that talks about a concept that is sort of half of the concept of God, but the one that is more difficult for people to understand, um, it's kind of more common in the East than in the West. It's what he calls the negative divine, and it's really interesting. I think it helps if you have a hard time reading through, let's say, maps of meaning, if you're trying to read Jordan Peterson and understand what he means by this idea of chaos. Um, if you have trouble with it, which a lot of people do, Walter Stacy's book, Time and Eternity, may actually help put that into context for you. It did for me. So without further ado, let me just open this up. Stacy says in the introduction that all religious thought is through and through symbolic. So, okay, so there's um, a, a, an aspect to reality which is symbolic. It's like the, it's not the realm of reality. It's sort of like the realm of mind, the way that we think in symbols, um, and how that how that connects to uh, the other side of reality, which is the here and now, the physical, the material, that kind of thing, cause and effect. Uh, but that's different from the symbolic or mental aspect. It's different from consciousness is not the same thing as material reality, right? There's some difference in kind between the two. And so what he's saying here is that when we're talking about religion, we're always talking about thoroughly symbolism in a symbolic world. That doesn't mean that it's not real. It just means that it's not material and physical. Um, it's something else. It's something like the division we make between mind and matter. So religious thought is through and through symbolic. He says, this insight is as old as religion itself. Then he says, I do not retract naturalism. On the contrary, I reaffirm it. But I endeavor to add to it that other half of the truth, which naturalism misses. All right, so I'll stop there for a second. What, what he means by naturalism is what we would call um, um, materialism. Uh, what, what, it's just kind of the, the um, way of understanding nature and the world that's scientific, um, we're all familiar with. 
um, he's just calling that naturalism. So if that's unfamiliar to you, that's all he means. And he says that when we look at the world like that, through the lens of naturalism or materialism, all is matter, all is physics, like we're missing something. We're missing some piece of the picture that's important. And what that piece is, is pretty obvious. It's, it's mind or spirit. If all there is is matter, well, how do you explain consciousness? How do you explain life? How do you explain, um, you know, things that aren't bound by physics, that, that don't supervene on the physical, as David Chalmers would say? There's something missing. So he's pointing that out. But then he asks an interesting question. He says, how it is possible for naturalism and religion, atheism and theism, to be but two sides of one truth. So that's what we're going to get into. How is it possible that naturalism and religion, that the belief in God and the belief that, that there is no God, how they can be two sides of one truth, right? We have to expand beyond naturalism to see the other half of reality. And it's something like a paradox, Okay, and that's something we encounter all of the time when we talk on this podcast, when we're talking about mysticism, when we're talking about religion, when we're talking about psychedelic experience, altered states of consciousness, um, symbolic thought, when we bring up ideas like the Ouroboros, the mythological Ouroboros, what we're looking at is a paradox. The Ouroboros is opposites in union. How can opposites be one thing? This is the paradox. This is a way of understanding this paradox. And this thing, this missing piece, um, Stacy's going to call non-being, but he's also going to call it the negative divine. And that's really what the meat and potatoes of today is going to be about. But before we get to the negative divine, we have to understand religion. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about God. Religion surrounds that concept. So we can't jump to the negative divine, trying to understand what God is, until we at least touch on what we mean by religion. And I think that is a that is not as intuitive an idea as you think. Even if you're a religious person, even if you're a spiritual person, even if you've been steeped in it your whole life, understanding the way that Stacy is going to position this idea of religion is probably very different than what you're used to, and it's one that I I quite like. So the next section I'm going to call "What is Religion." And he starts by quoting Alfred North Whitehead, right? This is somebody we've talked about at length on the podcast, um, a philosopher, but a kind of a mystical one. Um, Whitehead said this, religion is the vision of something which stands beyond and within the passing flux of immediate things. Something which is a remote possibility and yet the greatest of present facts. Something which gives meaning to all that passes, and yet eludes apprehension. So I'll stop there for a second. So this is Whitehead's quote about what religion is, and I want you to pick up on the paradox that's in this. He says, Religion is the vision of something which stands beyond and within immediate things. You see that? You see that contradiction? Beyond and within. How can it be both? Beyond and within immediate things. He says something which is a remote possibility and yet the greatest of present facts. 
So how can it be the greatest of present facts and also a remote possibility? How is that possible? He says it's something which gives meaning to everything, but eludes apprehension. What is it that can give meaning to everything, but not have a meaning itself? What is that? Is it possible? And if it is, what could that mean? And if your brain is churning, if the cogs are moving, if you're a little bit befuddled but also inspired, that's the idea. You're on the right track. Is it possible that something can be the union of opposites? Is it possible that something can be a remote possibility, something like a potential and a reality, a here and now, at once? How can it be that that is the case? If you meditate on that question, if you meditate on the paradox, that is the path, right? You're going to start following that thread. That is the path. And then, and then Stacy says about Whitehead's quote here, he says, These words express a direct intuition from his own personal religious experience. What he says is not a faded copy of what someone else has felt or thought or seen. These experiences are the original source of all religion. Always they bear the stamp of their own authenticity. They need no external proof or justification. We know them because the God in us cries out. Man, man. So I don't know who's be- whose quote's better here, uh, Stacy's or Whitehead's, but they're brilliant. Um, so when he says that uh, Whitehead's words are direct intuition, um, that they're not a faded copy of what somebody else has said, but there's something authentic and real, um, it, that's important. Because this goes, this goes to something that we've talked about many times. I try to make a distinction sometimes between dogma and religion, and, and Stacy uses different words. He doesn't use dogma. He actually says religion, as in the same way I would talk about dogma. What he means is things that get built up around a religious figure, ideas that maybe aren't even a part of a holy book, if there is a holy book associated with it. Um, in Christianity, you can point to things in Catholicism that built up over the years, um, ideas like purgatory and, and limbo and uh, the infallibility of the Pope and, you know, ex-cathedra and all, uh, all these different ideas that come from Catholicism that, that aren't biblical, that didn't come from the mouth of Jesus and aren't to be found in the Bible. They're things that get added to as a way of understanding or experiencing something, something genuine. And, and Stacy's making a distinction between a faded copy of what someone else has thought, right? That to him is religion, a faded copy of what someone else has experienced. Right? What you're after is a, is a personal religious experience. What you're after is a connection to God. And there's something really important about that, that you're missing if you're just f- listening to someone else's story, if you're following someone else's path. And that, that's a criticism of organized religion. And it's not one I take lightly, but it's also not one I can argue with exactly. I think if you're going to read a faded copy of someone else's experience and you're going to try to put faith and believe, believe that, that that is a, a good first step. Maybe it's a, a preparation for your own mystical or religious experience. But that's what he's saying here. He's saying that when somebody actually experiences this thing we call religion, this experience of God, whatever that is, 
They know it to be a fact. He said, because the God in us cries out. Man, oh man. All right, Stacy says, note their paradoxical, paradoxical character. Paradox and contradiction are the very essence of that something, right? That something that Whitehead is talking about, that thing we call God. He says, this is what religion means. The religious impulse is the hunger for the impossible, the unattainable, the inconceivable. Religion seeks the infinite, and the infinite, by definition, is impossible, unattainable. So what you have to understand here is that there is an intuition in human beings of the infinite. Even though we may not experience anything that is infinite, it's like something we know is there or is possible. Um, it's something that we seek after and that, that drives a lot of things. It drives the infinite progress that we, you know, that we seem to be you know, as, a, as a biological thing. A life, as an example, is this infinite uh, process of progression and transformation. And we see that everywhere. We're seeking something impossible, something unattainable. And in, in doing so, we kind of become impossible and unattainable. He says religion is the desire to break away from being altogether. To get beyond existence into that nothingness where the great light is. It is the desire to be utterly free from the fetters of being for every fetter is a being. Excuse me, for every being is a fetter. Existence is a fetter. To be is to be tied to what you are. Religion is the hunger for the non-being which yet is. Okay, so when he says to be is to be tied to what you are, right? This is how he says being is a fetter, existence is a fetter. That's something that holds you down. It's something that constrains um, the infinite, right? It's something that is a constraint. To be is to be tied to what you are. Like to be is to be something specific, to be someone specific. And he says, religion is the hunger for the non-being, which yet is. It's something like what you are apart from your particularity. Like it reminds me of the biblical phrase, I am. God says, I am. Well, I am isn't something specific, is it? I am is is being itself, amness, being. What we mean when we say the word is, like this is what God is, and it's not, it's not differentiated. It's not particularized. It's not some specific being. It's being full stop. To be tied to what you are is a fetter, he said. So you have to get beyond what you are, so that you so that you can understand that what you are is more than you are or more than you think you are. Something that Jordan Peterson said that always rings to me is, uh, he talks about human beings feeling like there's a cosmic significance to their lives. And this is, this is what, this points in the same direction. Religion is the desire to break away from what you are so that you know what you really are. And there's all kinds of ways we've talked about this before. When I say break away from, from what I am, um, you might be reminded of this idea of an ego death, right? Of dying to yourself. And once your ego dies, once this false subjective part of you dies, 
and, 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 and fades away, you realize that you aren't gone, that something persists, something that you still identify with, right? You, the thing that is attached to your name and your face and your preferences and your memories, that thing goes away. And when that goes away, you're not gone. You're still there. What is that thing that's still there? The great I am, right? That is the hunger for the non-being which yet is. That's what Stacy's talking about. All right, he says, It is true that religious men have conceived their goal as a state of existence beyond the grave, filled with all happy experiences. So what is he talking about here? Like He's contrasting the idea of an afterlife, the idea of heaven, to this mystical experience that we're, we're discussing. What's the goal of religion? It's heaven, right? It's, it's heaven. If you're a Christian, the goal of religion is to achieve heaven, whatever that means. And he says, plainly, such happy experiences were no more than symbolic. They represent the goal. Heaven represents the goal. He says, one cannot conceive the inconceivable. So, in place of it, one puts whatever one can imagine of delight. Right? So, whatever the goal of religion is, is inconceivable. We can't put words or concepts to it, really. We're not going to do justice to it. It's what the, what the Taoists say when they say the Tao that can be spoken of is not the real Tao. The moment you put words to it, it's false. So when we talk about heaven and we explain that it's this place of infinite delight and happiness and eternal life and all that, like that's all symbolic. Those are words that are trying to point towards some truth that cannot be put into words. And he says that in the Upanishads, they call this, they say the infinite only is bliss. Right? So that's heaven, to become the infinite. That's heaven, that's bliss. And you can see how the infinite, to be infinite, does require the death of that, that part of you that thinks it's not infinite, that thinks it's a finite ego or subject or self. You have to, you have to get beyond that. He says, The religious soul must leave behind all things and beings, including itself. It must pass into nothing. What it seeks is the beginning, which is non-being. And God is this being. Is this a contradiction? Yes. But men have always found in their search for the ultimate contradiction and paradox. They lie at the heart of things. To give the most obvious example, the doctrine of the Trinity proclaims that there is contradiction in the ultimate. All attempts to make religion a purely rational, logical thing are not only shallow, but would destroy religion. Either God is a mystery, or he is nothing at all. Either God is a mystery, or he is nothing at all. So I want to bring your attention to that first sentence. The religious soul must leave behind all things and beings, including itself. It must pass into nothing. 
So again, you see this idea of, of the ego death. When it says that, that the religious soul, whoever is seeking God, has to leave behind all things and beings, leave behind the idea of being, including the idea of being a self. Right, So you can see the ego death experience is a part of it. It must pass into nothing. It has to seek non-being, and that, that being is God. What, what it means to seek nothing or non-being is to seek God. Now this is the idea we're hinting at right here of the negative divine. How can it be that what God is, whatever that means, is nothing or non-being? This is another one of those paradoxes that we need to think about. We start un untangling that twine and following that thread towards the truth. Is it a contradiction? Yes, Stacy says. Of course it is. But that's always the case. When we're speaking about God, we will inevitably run into a paradox. God is either a mystery or nothing at all. And that brings me to the next section, which we're going to call the negative divine. All right, let's get into it. All right, Stacy says, God is both being and non-being. Right, so you see here we have a paradox. We have a thing and its opposite, being and non-being. When we think about being, we think about the here and now. We think about material reality, um, matter and energy, and the laws of physics and all of that, space and time and the kit and caboodle. That is being. Non-being is something else. What is that something else? Well, it's a mystery, right? It's a mystery or nothing at all. But what that, what that could be are things that aren't accounted for by material, physical laws. Consciousness is a good example. Life is a good example. There's no explanation for how matter becomes living. It's a mystery, right? There are things like that that aren't accounted for. And so you can see that there's more to reality than just being. How much more? I don't know. But maybe... Maybe a huge amount. Maybe most of reality is non-being. Okay, he says, if we take non-being by itself, so we're just going to take being out of the picture, focus on non-being, whatever that is, the realm of spirit or spirit, whatever that is, right? If we take that by itself, he said, then the statement God is non-being sounds very much like the statement there is no God. Nevertheless, that God is nothing is a refrain which occurs over and over again in the religious literature of the world. The nothingness of God finds expression in other phrases. God is emptiness, the void, the abyss. Right? That's, that's Jordan Peterson's chaos that I mentioned earlier. That concept does no more than express the ultimate mysteriousness of the universe. So I want you to think of this. If you remember in the Bible, when God is creating the universe, it begins with the deep, the void, the abyss. That's the thing that's there before um, creation is, is brought forth, right? So we're beginning with this very fundamental idea, this originating symbolic idea, the emptiness, the void, the abyss, God as nothingness or non-being, or as, as the unconscious, if you're a if you're a psychologically-minded person. So imagine this idea of nothing or non-being as all things together. This is that symbolic idea of the Ouroboros. The idea that, the, that 
that the word nothing and the word everything, they're in a certain in a certain sense, they're synonyms. I know it's difficult to understand. It's one of those paradoxes you're going to bang your head against the wall trying to understand. But the idea here is something like an analogy maybe would help. We've used before the analogy of light, the analogy of music. So imagine um, light. So we know that the spectrum of light comes in all the different colors and plus ranges beyond our, our, our ability to see, uh, the infrared and ultraviolet and so forth. But if we're looking at the color spectrum, light shining through... Um, uh, you know, breaking up into the spectrum, shining through a, a crystal or something. Um, you've got all the different colors of light present, but you know that where they originate from, the, the light that doesn't seem to have any color at all, the white light, you know, it's all those colors wrapped into one. So before they're split and showing up as a rainbow, right, before the light beam is split, showing up as a rainbow of all the colors, if we rewind that clock back, all those colors come together, and they become white light. So what you see is all of the potential colors existing in this thing that isn't any color at all. It's the absence of color. And yet from it, you can break up all of the different colors that exist. So this is one way of understanding how the one can be many. How, how all of the light, when you put it together, becomes no light. Or no color, excuse me. So you can see how everything and nothing using that analogy, are the same. Everything, all the colors of light put together, are no light. Everything is nothing. Another analogy that um, I heard before, and I can't remember where, maybe it was Jordan Peterson or uh, some rando podcast, is the idea of um, playing all of the symphonies that have ever been written at the same time. Imagine you had a... You had just loading them in file by file in your computer, and you're loading them right over top of one another, and you hit play. What you would hear is something probably like static. Something like that. Because all of the sound layered over top of each other becomes no sound at all. Right? You can break out, pull out from that all the symphonies that exist. But the moment you put them all together into one thing, you've got no music at all. So this is the idea how everything can be nothing. How non-being can be something. You know, Maybe not just something, but the potential for anything. Something that I would just call potentiality. Like the great stem cell of being. Something that can become anything. Or everything. And this is the idea of the negative divine. All right, let's keep going. He says, since God is nothing, he is not this kind of being or that kind. And there arises the suggestion that he is to be reached by exclusion of attributes. And he gives a quote by a guy named Albertus Magnus who says, when we proceed to God by the way of abstraction, we deny to him all bodily and sensible attributes, then intelligible qualities, and lastly, the being which would keep him among created things. So this is the idea of trying to understand what God means. I try to wrap your head around that idea. He says, if God is nothing, non-being, it's not this kind of being or that kind of being. It's all possible being all at once, right? So what nothing means is not, I mean, it does mean not this or that type of being. 
And you could say, well, it's nothing. Then It's not this kind. It's not that kind. It's nothing. But in truth, what that nothing is, is not poof. You know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not nothing. It's something. That's what I'm getting to. And that's something that we might call potentiality. Okay, he says, to get to that idea, what we might do is start taking away all the attributes, right? Um, If it's possible for something to be tall or short, fat or skinny, hot or cold, you know, any of these attributes, um, you know, thoughtful, uh, hateful, spiteful, powerful, you take away all the attributes that you possibly can. And what you're left with is the thing that is the thing that can have attributes. It doesn't you've taken them all away, it doesn't have any attributes. It's the thing which can have them. What is that thing? What is that abstraction? When you take away all the particular particularities, all the things it could be, are you left with nothing or are you left with something like a stem cell, the potential to become anything? See that is something. That is very different from nothing, wouldn't you say? And when you take all those qualities away, Albertus Magnus says, you take away all its bodily and sensible attributes. It's not like a human being. It's not tall or short. It doesn't have hair. It doesn't have, right? It's not a male or female. You take away all those attributes. Then you get to its intelligible qualities. It's like this. It's like that. No, it ain't. Take away all those. And then lastly, what you have left is this idea of being. What kind of being is it? Well, once you've taken away all the attributes, it isn't, a, it isn't any particular being. It might, it's like being as such. And that's, that's the stem cell idea. That's the idea of potentiality or what he's calling non-being or the negative divine. Now, I was going to go into some examples so we can see how this plays out in the religions of the world. He says, many Jewish mystics gave a special meaning to God's creation of the world out of nothing. In Latin, they call that ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. The Jewish mystics, they said that that nothing out of which the world was created is identical to God himself. The nothing out of which the universe was created is God himself. See, the nothing is something. What that something is is hard to define. When we use that word God, it's a paradox. Nobody has really has any idea what that means. All right, he says, Only when the soul has stripped itself of all limitations and descended into nothing does it encounter the divine. This nothing signifies the divine itself. Creation out of nothing means creation out of God. So I can't help but think of um, Buddhist meditation as an example. And the idea there is to is to lose your sense of self in the process of meditation. Not unlike at all the ego death experience that people people describe from psychedelic experience as an example, but you're doing this through meditation. The idea is to become nothing, to become nobody, to not be a self anymore. When you do, again, it's not that you die or disappear or go away. So whatever you are is still there. It's just stripped of its subjectivity. It's stripped of its identity, of its ego anyway. It still has an identity. In fact, you're still still present in it. It's not nothing. You are not nothing. And you're certainly not merely an ego or a persona. 
He says, turning now to Hinduism, we find the negative character of the divine from the Katha Upanishad. So let me read you this line from the Upanishad. It says, He who has perceived that which is soundless, intangible, formless, undecaying, tasteless, odorless, eternal, without beginning, without end, is freed from the jaws of death. Isn't that interesting? So he who has perceived that which is formless, eternal, without end. If you've glimpsed that thing, you are freed from the jaws of death. Why? Why would that be the case? I, I mean, I can't help but be reminded of, of the words of Jesus. When Jesus offers eternal life, he who believes in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Right? So, there's something, there's something here that's common in religious idea, uh, traditions, the idea of overcoming death. And it has to do with coming into contact with the divine. Like once you've done that, you're freed from the jaws of death. What does that mean? He says, He is undifferentiated unity, indeterminate, beyond relation, featureless, unthinkable. This is, again, continuation of describing this idea of God, uh, this negative, negative divine. He says, uh, again, another quote from the Upanishads, If one knows him as Brahman, the non-being, he becomes merely the non-existent. If one knows Brahman is, then he is known as the real in-existence. All right, so I know that's maybe hard to capture the first time. Let me just slow down. He said, if one knows God, he just says him, but if one knows God as Brahman, the non-being, if you understand this idea of, this, of the negative divine, then God becomes merely the non-existent. By that, I think he means merely the transcendent, you know, the numinous, the spiritual. So if you think about God as non-being, it's only the spiritual aspect that you're, that you're taking into consideration. He says, though, if one knows Brahman is, then he is known as the real in existence. So the other part of Brahman is not the transcendent, it's the imminent. It's the here and now. It's the material. It's the, it's the temp, spatio-temporal. It, you know, it's, the, it's existence itself. If one knows God as that, then one understands that God is what makes existence real. What is the real in existence? God is both the transcendent and the imminent. And if those, of course, are opposites, we see that, again, the union of opposites, the Ouroboros, that paradox in uh, the Hindu idea. Then he says, Buddhism is, just as much as Christianity or Hinduism, an interpretation of mystical experience. All right, so earlier he said that, that this mystical experience is the origin of all religions. And here he's repeating this again. This experience that is possible to have that we're going to talk more about is just as much the foundation of Christianity and, and Hinduism as it is for Buddhism. He says the... the and, and this is interesting because Buddhism is often seen differently from, from other world religions, even differently from Hinduism where it came from. I mean, Gautama Buddha was a Hindu, just like Jesus Christ was a Jew. right? So... Hinduism is a little different in that many of the believers of Buddhism 
are reluctant to accept the idea of God at all. But he, Stacy's saying even Buddhism comes from this mystical experience, the same experience behind all other religious traditions, period. He says, the religious sense becomes differentiated through conditions of historical, cultural, and geographical determination. In rare cases, the differences may become so great that kinship is barely recognizable. There is but one religious spirit in man, though we may speak of many religions. So that's interesting. So the religious spirit of man, you know, this is something that we, it's just a capability, it's part of being human, that we're capable of having religious experience. And it, it is that experience, whatever it is, interpreted through your particular historical, cultural, geographical situation. You know, in first century Palestine, that was Christianity. In um, you know, ancient prehistoric India was Hinduism, and you know, so it just depends um, on the conditions of of your life how you interpret this religious spirit. But it's the same religious spirit being interpreted in different ways. He goes on. He says the concept of Nirvana is the Buddhist interpretation of what the Christian calls God, and that's interesting. Because I would have said that nirvana is the interpretation of what Christians would call heaven, like, like, like an afterlife or an ultimate goal to religious experience. But this is actually kind of where Stacy's going. He's going to blur the lines, and I think in a very interesting way, between, between religious experience, this mystical experience of God, and God itself. So when the Buddhists say their goal is nirvana and the Christian says their goal is heaven, they both mean God. And that may not sound intuitive to you, but let's keep going. He says, God and nirvana play the same role as satisfaction of religious aspiration. Right? When you practice religion, what are you aspiring to? God, nirvana, if you're a Buddhist. They both have the same root in mystical experience. They are two different theories about the same thing. The concept of God is the theory woven upon the numinous experience in nearly all religions. Isn't that interesting? God as a concept is woven upon this mystical experience. I have this mystical experience. I come back from it and I try to explain it to you. What am I, what am I explaining? It's not an experience exactly. It's God I'm trying to explain to you. That's what I experienced in that numinous mystical experience. I experienced God, and that's what I'm trying to explain to you. And so when the Buddhists have that experience, and they come back and describe nirvana, it's God they're trying to explain. God is an experience. What could that mean? All right, he says nirvana is simply the name of the numinous experience itself. It is the name for that supreme experience wherein all distinctions of subject and object is transcended. Right? Union of opposites. We, think, we can think of the world as made up of subject, you and I, and objects, all the things we experience. Experiencer and experienced. And those opposites are one thing. Right? So when you're in that mystical experience, the distinction between subject and object is transcended. There isn't a difference between you and I. 
There isn't a difference between me and the world. There isn't a difference between me and God. It's transcended. He says, it is not that the mystic has an experience of God. And this is very important. It's not that the mystic has an experience of God. For in that case, God would be an object for the soul as subject. It's not like I'm encountering God out there. I'm standing face to face to God and shaking his hand. It's not like I'm having an experience of God the way I would any other um, object. He says, the distinction between God and the soul is wholly done away with. And here's where it gets good. The soul passes into the being of God, becomes God, is God. And that, that is the mystic experience, to be God. And there's all kinds of flowery ways we try to beat around the bush, when we, especially Christians, when we talk about this. We say we have an encounter with God. We have an experience of God. We participate in God's energies. We, uh, we, um, Whatever, all kinds of ways we can talk about this, all different ways of trying to say, but not being allowed to say that I was God, or even more blasphemous, that I am God. But that's what the mystic experience is. When subject and object is transcended, you become one with everything. And what is that everything? Capital G O D. He says, such an experience is the source of the Hindu phrase, thou art that. The identification of Brahman, which is the spirit of God, and Atman, which is the spirit of man. They're one thing. And he said, this is also the common Christian phrase that God is to be found in the hearts of men. Okay, what does that mean, that God is to be found in the hearts of men? It, it seems to mean that God and men are not is as distinct as we generally like to think. Stacy says, the reason such a statement may strike us as strange, like when I say the soul passes into to the being of God, becomes God, is God. When I say that my soul is God, the reason that that statement strikes us as strange, and we resist it, we think it's blasphemous or or you know nonsensical. He says is because we distinguish God the experience from God the entity conceived as the cause of the world. When you have the mystical experience and you say, this is an experience of God, experience of being God, and somehow that experience is different in our minds from this idea of a creator. Right? It can't be, I can't be the creator. The creator created me in some roundabout way, either directly or through the process of nature. It's like, how can I be the thing that created me? That's a fucking paradox. That's a chicken-egg situation. What's going on? And that's exactly right. The paradox is exactly right. So we have to be able to think of the experience of God, of becoming God and mystic, and mystic uh, experience as no different than this concept we think of as creator. What could that mean? All right, he says, a Muslim mystic, Ibn al-Arabi, wrote, it is necessary that you know him after his fashion. This is God we're talking about. It's necessary you know God after his fashion. What does that mean? He said, not by learning, not by intellect, nor by understanding nor by imagination, nor by sense, nor by perception. 
Phenomenal existence is but the concealment of his existence in his oneness. Okay, so all of the multiplicity of the world. All the things that we know by our intellect and understanding and imagination. All those things are phenomena. They're all, they're all things that are concealing a, a, a reality. The oneness of God that rests behind. It's like the, uh, the ones and zeros from the Matrix. That's God. That's behind everything, making everything work, animating all of the all of the matrix. That that's the real thing. Everything on the surface of that, all the things you're seeing in the matrix are not real. And this is this is a very common belief from folks that have had mystical experiences. They realize that there is a reality more real, a reality greater and more fundamental than the material. Uh, um, you know, um, spatial, temporal, cause and effect world that we think of as as reality. There's something else. There's something more. This is what Stacy was referring to in the beginning when he said, "There's the other half of reality that has to be taken into consideration." He says the difference between the phrase "God is nothing" and "there is no God" lies in the fact that God, as an utter void carries with it the suggestion of something beyond, something vast and vague, shadowy and tremendous, too great for human apprehension. Okay, so God is nothing implies that that, that, that there's something that means, that nothing doesn't mean nothing really. To say there is no God is not the same thing as to say God is nothing. Because to say God is nothing implies that nothing has a meaning, that nothing is something, something maybe vast and vague and shadowy and too great for human apprehension. Maybe that's why we call it nothing, but it's not nothing. He says, faintly, we glimpse God or know him to be in us and in the world. Yet if we try to understand what he actually is, there arises before the mind a veil of darkness hiding the ultimate. That, I think, is a tremendous experiment. Imagine God as something in you and in the world. And any sort of believer, any sort of religious person um, can kind of understand that idea. That God is the force behind reality, that which allows it to exist. It's connected with the force of life and motion and energy. It's the thing that moves within us. It's our spirit, um, you know, the thing that, that turns, the spins the planets. And, you know, it's, it's the, the, the moving force and animating force behind all of reality. It's there in you and in the world all the time. Mm-hmm. You can't point to it, but you know it's there. It's the thing making it work, making it exist and making it work. Now, trying to understand what that thing is, trying to put some name to it, so try to put it in some category, try to understand it, wrap your mind around it as a concept, try to do that. What is that thing? Go ahead, try. What comes to mind? Nothing. A veil of darkness. Right? That's God as non-being. That's the negative divine. The thing you can't speak of. The thing you can't point to. But the thing you can't say isn't there. The thing you have an intuition is there. That's hiding behind that darkness. And a good way, and I've used this before, but a good way of understanding how something infinite, like this idea of God, is unknowable, um, is 
uh, I always use this this concept, but the um, the number pi. So we know the number pi, three point one four one five, on and on and on and on it goes. It has no end, right? So for me, for for somebody to understand, to really know pi is impossible, right? In order for me to understand it, I have to be able to wrap my mind around it. It has to be in some sense finite. I have to be able to put a beginning and an end and cap that idea so that everything is contained in this concept. The whole thing is contained in this concept. That's the only way I can know it. But because it can't be contained, it just keeps going on and on and on. Those decimal places keep going on forever. It is impossible to know pi the way that you know your dog, the way that you know the number six. It's impossible to know pi that way because it is infinite. It is unknowable, if that makes sense. We have to put these artificial fetters on it. We have to think, okay, pi is 3.14. Well, it is and it isn't. You can understand 3.14. You can use 3.14. What you can't use is 3.14 to infinity decimal places. It's not something that's real exactly. And that's a, that's a way of understanding how the infinite is unknowable. And we can use that for God as well. All right, he says, It is the mystic himself who finds his vision ineffable. Right? That means he, he can't put words to it. He uses the same language we use, but says the words do not express his meaning. And I've been in this situation many times trying to explain my own mystical experience. Words fail, but why do they fail? He says this can only mean one thing. That the nature of the experience is incapable of being conceptualized. To comprehend means to understand by means of a concept. And that which is incapable of being conceptualized is inherently incomprehensible. He says, God is a mystery even to himself. The intellect is the subject, and what is fed into it is its object. Thus, it is of the very nature of intellect to involve subject and object oppositions. The only way to understand anything is to be a subject observing an object, right? It's the only way. But in the mystic experience, this opposition is transcended. There is no difference between subject and object. And that is why it is incomprehensible. That is why it's ineffable. That is why mystics can't put it into words or the words fail to mean what they want it to mean. Because what is being described is not capable of being captured by a concept. You need both subject and object to have a concept. And the mystic experience blends them together, transcends them. You become one. Subject and object become one thing. How then can you know anything? You can't point to anything and say that thing exists because that thing is you. There's no difference. He says the same lesson is taught by the insistence of the religious consciousness on the oneness of God. This is the whole, this is the whole force behind monotheism. God being one. He says, this isn't only the one of Plotinus or the one of the Upanishads. It appears within, within, uh, even in the doctrine of the Trinity. God, although three, is yet in undivided unity. Right? Paradox. Trinity is a paradox. Even in Christianity, the idea of God is a paradox. The triune deity, the one and three, what does that mean? He says that this oneness is not like the tripod divisible into three. 
the oneness of God is indivisible and relationless. Right? It's not, there's nothing outside of God to have a relationship with. He said, this is precisely the mystic intuition. It is not only the separation of subject from object which is transcended, but all separation. And this is why you will hear mystics say, when I had the mystic experience, I was one with the universe. Right? It's not just subject and object. It's every boundary is transcended. Everything becomes one. It's a God as a singularity. God is all things wrapped into one. All potential things pushed into one. And there's a symbolic image from religion, that, from ancient religion, ancient Egypt as an example. It's this idea of a cosmic egg. That the world was... was contained in this singularity, captured within this cosmic egg. The ancient Sumerians have the same idea of the god Tiamat and Apsu formed together originally as one thing, as this cosmic egg, and then they separate, right? Then the egg hatches, and that's the act of creation. All things that are and ever will be pour forth from that cosmic egg. This oneness, you can kind of imagine this cosmic egg. There is no outside of the egg. Right? Everything is the egg. All right, he says, he says, God, we must assert, does apprehend his own oneness. But it cannot be by any concept. It can be only by intuition. His self-knowledge is knowing by being. It is true also of the human mind that it can know God only in intuition. A man may know theology without knowing God. He may know God without knowing theology. But there could not be any theology unless they were first the mystic inner sense. Theology is but the attempt to interpret that experience to the intellect. Theology, religion are the stories we tell and the symbols we use to try to make sense of that, of that mystical unity, that oneness encountered in religious experience. I want to talk about this idea of intuition because he brought it up and because a lot of people want to brush that off. Um, I was no exception until I had my own mystic experience. I didn't really believe in intuition. I didn't really. Like, I would entertain some things like that, but I was very, very, I was like, it was like voodoo or astrology, things I just write off. I didn't, didn't buy into this idea. But he says, by intuition, he means knowing by being. God is aware of, of itself. God knows that it's God because it is God. That's how it knows. It's not a concept. It's not, you're not communicating something to God. God knows that God is because God is God. That's it. It's like you know you're you. You know that you exist, right? Because you are you. Being, or knowing, is, knowing by being, this is the idea. And then he says, it is true also of the human mind that it can know God only in intuition. So what does that mean? If God knows that it's God by being God, that's what he's calling intuition. And we can know God only by intuition. What does that mean? That means we can only know God by being God. And that is the mystical experience. That's the mystical revelation.
All right, when he says that there could not be any theology unless there were first the mystic sense, and that theology is an attempt to interpret that experience uh, to the intellect, he even says, that, that reminds me so much of Carl Jung talking about humanity's role is, is to make the unconscious conscious. Like, like there's this process where we're taking potentiality, we're taking God, and we're, we're filtering it through whatever it is we are, and we're trying to bring it into the world. We're trying to make the unconscious conscious. It's a creative act, you know, just like God creating the universe. All right, he says, why cannot the infinite be apprehended by concepts? So you might want to know. Um, I can kind of come up with any kind of concept I want, or can I? And is it possible to have a concept that, uh, that fully captures the meaning of something infinite? Okay. Why can't the infinite be apprehended by concepts? Now he says, to see this, we must understand that the word infinite, in the religious sense, has nothing to do with the mathematical infinite. Infinity, okay? The, the infinity of God means that which there is no other. That's what he says. That which there is no other. So I don't know what that makes you think of, but there is, there is nothing else. Imagine God as the thing which there is nothing else. The oneness, this idea of God as being self-created and self-sufficient, that kind of thing. And when he tries to explain this, he says, it's like that which is spoken of by Spinoza, the philosopher Spinoza, who said that the conception that the conception of which does not need the conception of any other thing from which it must be formed. So an idea that doesn't rely on any other ideas, a concept that doesn't rely on any other concepts, that includes all other concepts and doesn't rely on any other. What is that? He said that's the same thing spoken of in the Upanishads as the one without a second. So imagine... Whatever it might be that is everything entirely, everything that is or, or, or could be, and there's nothing else. There is, imagine the thing that encompasses everything, and there is nothing else. There is no space outside of it. There's nothing left out of it. It's everything. He says, the infinity of God is no more than another name for his oneness. And this oneness is the idea that neither within God nor outside him is there any otherness, any division. There is nothing else. This, then, is the final interpretation of the negative divine. It does not mean that God is nothing. It does not mean that he has no positive being. Only that his positive being, though revealed to intuition is hidden from intellect. And that brings me to my conclusion. This concept of the negative divine is critical to coming to understand how God might have existence while simultaneously being absent from the world of phenomena. How it can be a reality and yet entirely unobservable. How God can be, as Stacy put it, a mystery even to himself. The explanation for this requires the mystic insight. It requires the model of God as an ultimate unity. As all that is or ever shall be, all at once. If we can start from this singularity, 
we can understand the oneness that is God. Because it is all, it has no parts, no other, nothing outside of it. There is no place it can be or go, for it is here and there the same totality. There is no before or after, as it is the eternal now. For these reasons, it cannot be understood rationally and cannot be fully captured by concepts. This is why God is unknowable, why it is a mystery even to itself. This is how God can be and yet stand forever out of the reach of understanding. But there is a way of understanding that is not rational. There is a path to knowing God, which Stacy calls intuition. He describes it as a knowing by being. God knows what it is by being God. And this experience is available to us too. It is what Stacy calls the mystic experience and the source of all religion. It is the common heritage of mankind. The thing in all our differences and distance which we share. The ability to experience the oneness that stands behind all of reality. Stacy describes that by saying, quote, The soul passes into the being of God, becomes God, is God. And once you've been God, you can no longer doubt its existence. The poverty of concepts no longer stands as a barrier to understanding. But what exactly is understood? Is it God in itself? the numinous ultimate reality which is understood, or merely this unique, unitive experience. There is a difference, isn't there? Well, Stacy doesn't shy away from that question. He says that we distinguish God the experience from God the creator. But why? Perhaps there is no reason. Perhaps... This has been holding humanity back from time immemorial. Stacy says that God is the concept woven upon the numinous experience. It is our way of understanding what cannot be understood. And what cannot be understood is that experience, what we might call consciousness, and the created world are one and the same reality. That subject and object are a single unity. That creator and creation are not distinct. That God is one. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>